Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. JJ Singleton was diagnosed with colorectal cancer at age 27. He thought he had beat it, but six weeks later, it returned and metastasized. JJ is an incurable terminal patient now going on seven years, and he has completed 121 rounds of chemotherapy. JJ is using his life to advocate and help others. JJ, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. It is an honor to be here. Well, I really appreciate it so much. It's not very often I get to interview someone who's going through it and definitely not as long as you've been going through it. So can you take us back to the beginning when you were first diagnosed and tell us what was going on in your life and if you had any symptoms? Uh, Yeah, it was a 2015. I would just got kind of a promotion at work. I finally got over my post-college kind of party and just going out my caring stage of life. <laughs> uh, so, so I got, you know, kind of determined. I was back in the gym getting healthy. And uh, it started about Memorial Day. I felt a throbbing in my abdomen. I was, you know, an athlete my whole life, Southern kid. So I ignored the pain unless I needed to go to the hospital. So I thought I was like, it'll get better. And throughout the summer, it just got progressively worse. And I did a CrossFit competition on August 1st of 2015. And then after that, my body crashed. Like, couldn't eat, couldn't drink. I was dehydrated every day. Couldn't use the bathroom. And then finally, my mom made me go to the doctor because my skin was turning gray. I was losing so much weight, not drinking or eating anything. And by that time, you could see the tumor throb through my abdomen, like through my skin. I could hold my shirt there. So the doctor looked at me. Got a CT scan. Yeah, I was on. What have you lost? Well, I'd, before 2015, I got up to 315 pounds. So I'd lost a lot of weight organically. But then probably the last part of that summer, I was losing five, 10 pounds a week. I was down to 240 on August 1st. And when I left the hospital October 1st, I was down to like 160. Oh, my goodness. Okay. But, right, so take us to your August your mom could it was, you to go to the hospital. Yeah, end of August. It was Labor Day weekend. I went to the ho- or doctor on the, the Friday before Labor Day. Okay. Went to the hospital, CT scan. They scheduled me a colonoscopy that Tuesday because everything's closed on Labor Day. Right. So that Tuesday, I get the colonoscopy. I wake up, and instead of just one doctor there, there's about eight different doctors and nurses in the room. And they said, you have a mass. And at that time, everything for the last like six months of my life clicked into line. And I was like, it's cancer. Before they even said that, biopsied it, I was just like, it makes perfect sense now. Turns out it was cancer. And in uh, five days, I was in the hospital getting surgery. Okay. And it was a tumor in your colon? Yes, it was a, once they removed it, it turns out it was a, a massive tumor. They had to remove 80% of my colon, about 36 inches of my small intestine. What? Yeah. I was 
if it had been about a quarter of an inch either way, I would have had to have an ostomy bag, but they were able to reattach it. The, somehow, my doctor was amazing, but wow. but yeah, it was a, at that time it hadn't metastasized. They, they took out lymph nodes and they said they think because I was, you know, eating so healthy and losing weight and being there that it kind of, my body fought it enough to keep it from spreading at that time. Maybe they, they don't know why it hadn't metastasized yet because it was so big. So they do the surgery, they take out some lymph nodes, they think they have clean margins. Did they recommend any treatment after surgery or did they say, hey, you're good to go? No, I went, uh, I got recommended to go down to Duke, the cancer center at Duke, because I was so young and there was no real family history of it. Okay. So they uh, did the whole genetic testing, went to Duke, and they recommended uh, 12 rounds of just a full fox that was like baseline chemo for colon cancer just to make sure we got everything. Okay. And then at that time I learned through genetic testing, I tested positive for Lynch syndrome, which is why I have got cancer so early. Right. Okay. So did you yeah. do those 12 rounds? I did. I did the 12 rounds. It uh, was tough. You know, chemo was horrible through me, like introduced things I'd never even thought of that your body could go through. But I did the 12 rounds, ended in uh, the end of April of 2016. Oh, gosh, and, we're the following year now. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, it was six weeks after that, I went for my colonoscopy because I was going to have to have one yearly at that time. Everything was clean. That night I woke up and the same throbbing was in my abdomen. So I was at the doctor at like six o'clock in the morning waiting on him to pull in and being like, something's wrong again. This is after your colonoscopy? Yep. It was that same night. It was just, that was the first throb and I felt again. And then, so over the next few weeks, test, you know, biopsy, back down to Duke, learned that the cancer came back, but moved to my abdominal wall and spread through lymph nodes throughout my body. And then they, you know, did all the tests and stuff and said it's come back and it's incurable because it's not a solid tumor no more. In my abdominal wall, they can't go in and cut it out. Right. remove remove it and it was resistant to the baseline chemo so i started on the path of every cocktail of chemo they had fda approved at that point over the next six months none of them worked my the cancer was growing throughout my body at that time and i applied and got approved for a clinical trial okay. which Tell saved my life that. Tell us about that. Uh, a lot of people don't know about clinical trials. Yeah, I didn't either. I thought I was going to be in a science experiment because <laughs> I, all, I, all I'd ever heard of clinical trials is what you see in movies and TV shows and the fear that comes along. But I had no choice because it was basically go to hospice or try the clinical trial because there was nothing left to do. This was my last shot. And Luckily, did it, your medical team recommend the clinical trial? Did they yeah, my oncologist in Asheville and the one at a duke they work well together Great. and they were they were going through the whole clinical trials to see which one my weird mutated tumors would allow me for and they even worked it out to where i didn't have to go to duke every three weeks to get it they got it shipped up to Asheville. that's amazing yeah they were they were amazing but before i was able to start it i got put in the hospital because the cancer grew around my stomach at the end of my stomach into my intestines and closed it off so at that point, everything I ate just set my stomach until I threw it up. So I went through 450, the next 450 days 
uh, eating through TPN infusions. I wasn't able to eat food for 14 months. Oh my gosh. Oh, but oh, what was that yeah, like? Yeah, that was the probably the lowest point of my life right there because I was sitting in bed probably 22 hours a day. And the, mm. like the infusions would take 15 hours over the night, but I was on a pain pump too. And I had two drainage bags that everything that went into my mouth, like liquid, would just go straight out into the drainage bags. The intestinal fluid would just be there. So I couldn't do anything. And I just had to sit there and it was mentally the toughest part. The only time I got to leave the house was pretty much to go to chemo or doctor appointments. So where are you living at this point? At this point, I'm living in my uncle's like basement apartment, which is within a mile of everybody in my whole family. Okay. Like we, we live in a very small community. So pretty much my whole close family lives within four or five miles of each other. Okay. And I take it, just with the circumstances you just just described that you were not able to go back to work. No, when I first got diagnosed, like my new job, I was an operations manager for my uncle's companies, which I focused mainly on, a, he, he ran convenience stores. I was a liaison kind of between the state and the underground tanks. So I'd have to like go into the gas tanks and make sure nothing's leaking. And as soon as I got diagnosed, they're like, well, you can't be doing that while you're on chemo. So yeah. I went to short-term disability. Then I went back to work for the six weeks. And then when it came back, I was in such pain. I couldn't do anything at that point. So I got on, I'm on disability. And then with all the no eating and the tubes and there, I've been on that ever since. Oh gosh. Well, I'm so glad you were able to get that because so many people yeah. have aren't or the yeah. people who who get it aren't actually sick so yeah i'm really yeah. glad that you were able to get that so at what point did you at what point were you able to get the feeding tube out and why like what needed yeah. to happen well when i started the clinical trial they we were going with the scans and it stopped it from growing it like right off the bat and then it shrank it enough over the next 14 months to where I went back for this major is like a 10 hour major surgery where they had to kind of scrape a lot of stuff, cut a lot of like scar tissue and other things away, reroute. Like the name of the surgery is about five lines worth of stuff on the report that I can't pronounce any word of it, <laughs> <laughs> but pretty much they said they had to reroute and redo a lot of stuff in there. And then over time I was able to start eating again. Okay. Yeah. What is that like? Because I think we all take uh, things for granted, right? Yeah. We take, oh, yeah. especially it's, eating, right? What was it like to start eating again after not being able to really eat for 14 months? Yeah. I, I tell people all the time, like with the TPN, I didn't miss eating. Like I was never hungry. I never had a stomach ache because it was made specifically for your, through your blood to get you the direct nutrients you need. But mentally you miss the taste you miss taking that and just the motions of eating and yeah. you know that it's a joy it's you know but in a community right yeah i had to sit around for two christmases and two thanksgivings at my family's dinner table and watch them smell it smell people cooking all the time and eating while i'm sitting there drinking like a glass of water what was and that like it mentally it, I, it made me not want to leave it like we had family dinners at my grandparents' house like almost every Sunday. Oh. It made me where I didn't want to do that. 
Yeah, of course. Just because I missed eating, I missed, you know, being a part of it. Yeah, I'm sure. But uh, then when I started back eating, everything tasted like salt for Wait, about a month. What? So you, you, you don't, reali you don't realize how much salt is in every piece of food that you eat because there's so much in it. And that was the taste that came back. It didn't matter if it was breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. All I could taste was salt for a good month. Now, is that also part of a side effect from chemotherapy? It might be, but they say too that there's just a lot of sodium in American food. Mm, and okay. when you when you go so long with, because I went 14 months and I didn't have any salt, because all I would drink was water or unsweet tea at that point. And so, but over time the taste came back a, a little different than before. And still to this day, things don't taste the way it did before that and before chemo, like nothing that I remember taste how it did before I got sick anymore. Is there something that you enjoy eating now almost as much as before? Starbucks coffee. I will go and get that every single day because <laughs> it, <laughs> okay, that's not food, but I'm no, sorry. but, that is the one thing that tastes almost exactly the same that I remember growing up. And okay. I don't care if it's six, seven, eight dollars. Uh, I go and get it every morning. Oh, good for you. But also, eating is my grandma's chicken and dumplings. That's something that it 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 brings back the memories and it tastes just as good as it ever has. Oh, that's good. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> wow. So you. You, do you finish that clinical trial? Kind of walk us through like what was next. I'm again a very unique and weird patient because my cancer did not usually the clinical trial it'll either work or cure you, like get rid of the cancer. Right. Mine kept it from spreading. So the cancer is still active, it still grows and shrinks some through me. But the clinical trial, which is now an FDA approved drug keeps it from spreading like it was before. So every year they have to uh, write the drug administration in there that I'm just a unique case to where I got to keep on the clinical trial. I'm, a, I'm going on six years when the recommended length is only two years of it, but it's wow. keeping it from spreading. And at one point my body will correct itself to where what the drug does won't work but they're hoping that's years away. And when that happens, they're hoping to be more drugs available at that point. So when you joined that clinical trial, was it a phase three trial at that point? It's a phase two trial. Oh, it's phase two. Okay. Yeah. So for people who don't know what that means, would you like to tell them the difference between the two? Uh, I'm, I, I know a little bit about the difference of, I just know there's a lot less known at that point. I know phase one is there's virtually nothing known to, from the dosage to the side effects. Yep. At the phase two, they had the dosages down, but they were concerned about, they didn't know how the length of time, the side effects, the effects that'll have on other drugs. So I'll get interviews every seven to eight days with the doctors and the drug people just asking me, hundreds of questions about what's going on. How's it affecting you in every aspect of life, like from mental to physical? You know, you touched on something I think is very important. 
that people don't realize about clinical trials is that you often get a lot more attention because the <sighs> rules and regulations are so strict. And just what you described, I mean, interviews every seven yeah. or eight days, which sounds exhausting, but it does show that they're yeah. constantly paying attention to what's going on. Yeah, see, that's one thing I thought, too. I was a clinical trial. They just, you know, stick me with the drugs and let me go. And then if something comes up, up that's bad, they'll come in. But then I realized, like, yeah, they, they spent billions of dollars developing this one drug. I was like, they want to know every little thing, every little thing that happens or don't happen. Wow. Oh, my goodness. You know, I can only imagine how this has changed your life. But what has been the most significant change for you? Uh, appreciation. I think before when I was growing up and I, I just kind of expected, you know, to go along life. And I was always good at school, good at sports, um, graduated college. I just kind of went about daily life and, you know, I appreciated things, but didn't appreciate just the little things in life. And then going through this, I wish I could go back to appreciate waking up and not being in pain one day or like going through there 14 months, waking up and being able to eat a donut for breakfast or a snack. So now I try to appreciate just the little things that happen, the interactions between people and new friends, because I, I spent 14 months where I basically didn't see anybody outside of my family just because I mentally, I didn't want to physically, I couldn't do anything. So appreciation to the little things that make life worth it. Oh my God. That's amazing. You're amazing. I'm sure people tell you this all the time. You're amazing. Tell me a little bit about your family. You've mentioned them several times. Yeah. Everybody's really close to you. What was this like for them? And, and also, do you have any brothers or sisters? Uh, yeah, I have a very big family. Most, I'd say 99% of them live in the same town that we all grew up in. Uh, it was, I couldn't have done this without them. Like my mom gave up, has spent all her vacation days that she had built up at work those first two years, taking me to doctors and chemos and mm -hmm. staying at me in the hospital stays. And same with my dad and my step parents and my grandparents. Like my grandma still to this day won't let me wash my own clothes because she wants to do something for me. So she comes <laughs> by and gets my, gets my clothes to wash. Oh my goodness. But Oh, how uh, sweet. It, it was it was hard on them. I could tell, like, especially I do have brothers. I have two full brothers and a sister and then a bunch of stepbrothers and a half brother. And it was it was definitely hard on them and my parents because we'd never really experienced like a sickness like this in my family. The only person that had really had cancer was my grandma's sister and she was well into her 80s. So they, I guess they just didn't really know the process, especially somebody that was you know, their kid or grandkid, yeah. but they, I tell everybody they did amazing. Like I would not be here without them at all. Let's dig a little deeper. So you have Lynch uh -huh. syndrome. Yes. That is genetic. It is. Did any of your family get genetic testing? They, well, the way that they described it to all of us, if whoever was over the age of 50 didn't need it because they're already screened for, all of the uh, cancers that would go there. And they they were all done having kids. But my brothers and my sisters did get tested for it. 
And it was weird too, because I had two brothers that tested negative and my sister, she didn't test positive for Lynch syndrome, but she has a mutation. They just haven't known what that is yet. They said, come back in a couple of years and we'll probably have a, you know, to be able to tell you what it is. So they said, you're just another weird thing in your family that usually it's 50 50, but they're like, you were the 25% of your siblings that have it. Yeah. Wow. I, I know someone sounds like your sister. She doesn't have Lynch syndrome, but she does have but, some sort of genetic mutation. Yeah. She's, she's had colonoscopies from a fairly young yeah. age. At yeah, one point they, uh, they actually had her swallow a camera. That's <laughs> but they both of my brothers and my sister and my half brother, they all get colonoscopies every two to three years, depending on if they were clean or not. But Oh good. So, yeah, they, that was my Christmas present to them in 2015. I, I was like, Y'all get to get these every couple of years now. <laughs> oh my god. But, wow. <laughs> um well talk to me a little bit about outside of your family. What about friends? Yeah, I, I have a really good set of like best friends. I, I'm friends with a lot of people, but it takes a lot to get to that like point to where I consider somebody like a best friend where I trust them with the craziness and the dark thoughts that go into my head all the time through going through this. And they've been there. Uh, the ones that live like close to me, check in with me on my hospital stays, they would come and sit with me, check in after chemo treatments and adjust their plans because, you know, me having cancer for this long, it's changed the way I'm able to go out and do things. So they've all changed their plans anytime we go and do stuff and accommodate me. And that just, it means the world. And then through this cancer journey and the, especially the last two years, I've developed probably one of the best friends of my whole life who also has cancer. She lives all the way in Arizona and her and her family have been great. Just really? getting to know them. Yeah. So it's, it's as bad as cancer is, it has brought like some of the best people into my life. How did you meet her? Uh, social media, online stuff. And then just started talking because she was kind of at the end of her chemo and stuff and going through the first stages of that scanxiety when you go <laughs> back to get that scan the first time. And then it was just a, organically after that messaging and then became best friends. I went and met her kids and her husband and everything this past year. So, Oh my God. How was that? Yeah, it was, it was great. Wow. What about romance? Any romance in your life? Uh, no, I was, uh, I was a guy growing up, especially like in my early twenties where I was like, I'm not gonna, you know, do that because I wanted to just be free. Like I wanted to wake up with the friends and be like, Oh, we're going to travel to this town or this city or something and go party for the weekend. And if I couldn't like commit 100%, I didn't think it was right for me or the other person. And then whenever I was ready to kind of take that next step in my life, I got cancer. And now I've not been mentally healthy enough to even think about that until recently. And now it's just kind of a wait and see thing. So what changed recently? A lot of therapy and a lot of like opening up and just thinking that I'm at a place in my mental health to where maybe I could try that and at least brave enough to see. 
I'm so glad that you mentioned therapy. Would you mind telling us how long you've been in therapy and what made you decide to do it? Yeah, therapy saved my life. I tell people that like know me, especially during that time where I was not eating and I was in bed the whole time. It got really, really dark. Like I had the suicidal thoughts and came very closer than I'd like to admit. But honestly, I do came close to being done with everything. And it scared me enough to I had to realize that I had to have help, that I couldn't do this all by myself. So it started off very slowly, like once a month talking to somebody and they gave me a little bit of hints to help just better, you know, small things like escaping the life of cancer with whatever makes you happy for that day for 10, 20, 30 minutes at a time. And that just kind of organically led. And now I go and I'm not once every two weeks. Now I, I talk to my therapist. So. That's awesome. Oh my yeah, God. You're like making me tear up because I just, <laughs> I just feel your authenticity and, and, and I can only imagine what those dark moments must've been like. Yeah, they, they, they were scary. Like I, I tell people all the time, I was like, that's probably the, the most scared I've ever been over sitting, waiting to go to you know, surgery or chemo treatments or anything realizing that I was having those thoughts and I was getting close to wanting to act on them, that it terrified me enough to break, you know, the whole, especially in the South where I'm from, the whole stigma about therapy and being a man and stuff. I, there was like, that's why I try to work on it now to break that stigma to people. Cause I was, to me, there's nothing more brave or more showing strength than asking for help when you need it. Oh, absolutely. Oh gosh. Well, you shared your worst moment. What has been your best moment so far? Just realizing that there is still life out there that I can still have a life. And it's not, I guess, not a single moment in time when I realized that, but over the past, especially two years when I've been out sharing my story and getting feedback from people, like I'll get a message and say, oh, you talking about getting a colonoscopy, maybe go to the doctor or, you know, save somebody or when they were feeling down, it helped them not be so down that day. And just that cumulative effort and realizing that I can still have a purpose. I'm not just a guy that's going to be sick the rest of my life. That's right. No, you're not. Absolutely not. What is one thing, JJ, you wish you had known at the beginning of this cancer journey? How tough the mental side of it would be. Because all I really knew about cancer was what you've seen on TV and movies. Like chemo was you lose your hair and you throw up. Well, I never left, lost my hair, but I threw up a lot. But I had no idea about the mental side of the whole dealing with cancer and going through chemo and, you know, facing death. So I, if I would have just had a heads up or somebody that, you know, <laughs> would have said, yeah, this is going to knock you for a loop often. Maybe I could have been a a tiny bit more prepared or wouldn't it just shook me so much. Yeah. I've been blessed for my oncologist. I mean, he's, he started his own treatment centers now and he has a therapist there and stuff that wasn't provided for him when he was under the big hospital umbrella. Oh, good for him. Yeah. He's, he's amazing. Um, Unfortunately, he's retiring here in two months, but Oh, Can't no. be mad at him. He wants to open more treatment centers in Western North Carolina where people aren't having to drive two hours to his or the hospital. And he's wanting to get imaging 
complete imaging at every one of his treatment centers to cut out the HCA hospitals. And so I was like, I can't be mad at you for doing all that. He's and I like better for patients. Yeah. And I like the, the oncologist, his partner is going to be mine and I've met him before. So we're going to be good. <laughs> JJ, if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U S what would it be and why? Wow, that is that's a that's a very complicated question, but just more access into everybody. Like I know minorities, ethnicities there, but especially to population differences. Like I'm Asheville is sixty thousand people, and that's the big city for me. So we don't have access to all these huge cancer centers and treatment centers that other people do. And I just think that so many things get lost from the five hours away to Duke or Chapel Hill to me up here in the mountains. So if everybody just had more access. Yeah. Oh gosh. I, I so agree with you. I don't think very often some of the people that I speak with and work with, I don't think they have that understanding at all. Yeah. They, they assume that everyone is just treated at an NCI cancer center. Like yeah. they, just, they, <laughs> they can't fathom that, that, you know, you don't live in a big city where there's all these options. And, and, and so it's a, it's a bit frustrating. Um, yeah. I've, I've realized that too, is the more I've got to talk to people that are, especially like people, healthcare and stuff. They're like, eh, you know, you just go to a big cancer center. I'm like, I have treatment with about the same people every three weeks for about six months until they're done. I was like, people at big cancer centers, they might see the same person once or twice or, you know, it's like, I know everybody from the receptionist to all the doctors and the nurses. Wow. Okay. Well, are you ready to lighten things up and do the thriving yeah. rapid fire? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. Live in the mountains. So definitely would need something different. And I've always loved the beach. <laughs> beach boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Uh, the Beatles. What Beatles are classic. They are indeed. What is one word that best describes you? Uh, persistent. That was, I kid you not, the first word that popped into my head for you. <laughs> so before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Oh, let's see. Beverly Hills by Weezer. Just because of the memory that it brings up of being in high school before my senior year. Not the best song, not my favorite song, but just the memories associated with that song. Isn't it amazing the memories that music and smells bring yeah. up? Uh, totally. It's, yeah. it's insane sometimes. Well, this one might be tricky, but what about the last <laughs> meal you want to eat? Uh, chicken and dumplings <laughs> for my grandma. <laughs> uh the last person or people you want to see uh, i would say everybody in my family and my group of best friends without a doubt and the last words you will speak uh, it was a good run and aside from cancer you what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers and also if you're open to it please tell people how they can get in touch with you yeah uh the resources i would recommend is kind of a group of three colorectal cancer organizations uh, fight crc okay. the colon club and colon cancer coalition they each kind of do something different one is more where 
work on legislation. One is, you know, for young colon cancer patients and others to uh, help people learn about the importance of colonoscopies. Okay. Would you send the link to the colon club? Because that one I don't yes. know. Yes. Okay. Yes, I will. And, and how uh, can people get in touch with you? I'm on uh, all social media. My Instagram is where I do most of like my journey through cancer and about my life. And it is JJ5145. Okay. JJ5145. Yes. What does the 5145 stand for? Anything? It's, it's always been an, it, in high school, five was my football number and 14 was a basketball number. And when I had to start doing logins and passwords, that was always something. And now, Earlier this year, uh, a Star Wars, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, but uh, one of the authors of the book, she's been following my jersey, and she named a droid in her book after my Instagram account name. No. Yeah. Oh, what was that like? That was insane, because I've told a lot of people that Star Wars is that one thing that I, I found when I was sick, and it was my escape, watching the movies, reading the books, and... uh she had started following me and then I got an autograph book from her. And on the first page, it said, turn to page 18. There's a surprise. And the droid's name was named after that. And it, it was a shock and amazing and everything. Now, did you, I have to ask before we wrap up, did you go back and watch the star Wars from my day where it was, I guess, oh, it was four five and six or whatever. Oh yeah. All, <laughs> all of them. I, I have those all on my, those are the only physical DVDs that I own anymore. Oh and, really? Yeah. <laughs> actually just got a tattoo the other day of s- stuff with star Wars. Oh really? What is it? Yeah. Uh, it's kind of, I don't know if you Describe can see it. People? Yeah. It's a, the uh, the symbol for the Rebel Alliance and Jedi Order, and then in the Star Wars language it says "Never tell me the odds," and the three letters are KFG, which is a saying in one of my man's groups. Keep effing going oh. through like chemo, and then there's little sixty eight blue dots kind of in the white space, and each one of those represents somebody that was like really close and meant something to me that has died of cancer in the last seven years. Oh. That is so beautiful. Wow. Oh, JJ, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your oh, story. Well, thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. Enjoy doing it. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.